1: Hello, and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, and I'm joined today by lead security architect, Scott Hall. Scott, how are you doing?
0: Good, good, Sean. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Scott, if you could, could you give us a brief bio uh, for the audience?
0: Uh, Sure, sure. So I've been in the um, uh, industry for quite some time, started out with uh, one of the initial commercial ISPs, Uh, setting up networking gear uh, around the globe, Uh, migrated into security as a natural course of my career. Uh, Most recently, I was working at a large-scale manufacturing facility uh, with a global presence and joined CIS uh, just over a year ago.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. So one of the topics that we wanted to discuss, and this is a topic myself and Scott talk about a lot, is zero trust. This is one of the archetypes that we're integrating and bringing to the organization here at uh, the Center for Internet Security. Scott, one of the things I wanted to do was actually define what zero trust is. Now, there's a lot of definition. There's a lot of I think in some cases, mistakes in terms of what zero trust is. I wonder if you could get, give us your thoughts on what you believe zero trust is and um, what we're trying to do here at CIS with that concept.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you'll see a lot uh, a lot of ads uh, with vendors saying that there's zero trust, this, that, and the other thing. And it's, it's, it's not a technology. I think many have talked about it before. It's a, it's a journey. It's a, it's a framework. It's a mindset. Um, and that's kind of what I look at it as. It's a mindset. It's taking all of the things that you currently do, and putting them into a framework, and trying to apply the controls uh, with without saying the word trust, right? So I've always laughed that this is a this is a horrible branding that they did on the uh, uh, the, the framework. Um, but it's essentially, it comes down to you never trust, uh, you always verify, and you assume breach. Uh, so that in a nutshell, there's there are the pillars. Uh, so there's the user pillar, uh, device pillar, your network pillar, your application, and your data. Now there's a lot of discussion around whether or not we should have a workspace pillar, or um, uh, if it should be off to the side. You know, I kind of think about it as you know you have the two ends of the spectrum. You have your user and you have your data. And from a business perspective, you're trying to connect those users to the data, the right users to the right data, of course. Um, And then everything in between is the workspace that you build, especially now with uh, moving to the cloud, uh, SASE platforms. Um, You're now uh, leveraging stuff in the cloud to provide your devices or your network or your applications. Um, So I think that those three center pillars kind of build out your workspace. So users connect to the workspace to get to the data.
1: Absolutely. There's one, um, and I'll use your quote, because I, I love this, um, and I want to talk about it a little bit, but trust is a vulnerability. Um, let's walk through that, and let's break that down, because like you say, that this branding of zero trust, but then there's this ultimate element of... Um, business user needs access to a system in order to run an application that consumes processes and outputs data. Can we break that down uh, into, uh, again, I think we'll uh, also address the five pillars through that process. But I really want to get into the, the weeds, as it were, a little bit in terms of what that actually means and why is it a vulnerability? What has it caused us to be Um, necessarily bad at today as organizations, as business processes, as the digitization of business. Why do we need to reach Zero Trust and, and, to your point, start on this journey? And why is it important that we all do it together? It shouldn't just be a single entity but I think this permeates our, our business, uh, the way we do business today. Is that the right thought, Scott? And uh, obviously, let, let's flow through some of those questions. I, I think I just asked you about five questions, but uh, <laughs> no, let's go through it.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely all, all go together. And, and I'm going to go back in the Wayback Machine and show my age. But you know, I started out, like I said, with uh, one of the first commercial ISPs. And when we were building networks, our security mechanisms, for all intents and purposes, were you know, usernames and passwords and ac- uh, access lists on routers and switches. And there started the whole idea of trusted networks or trust, right? So so as we started putting the protections in place to try to wall things off, the easiest thing to do is throw up a firewall. Now everything on the outside is untrusted because we don't know who they are. Everybody on the inside is trusted because they, they know who they are. That was a, a reaction to the, trust everything mentality um, so now we're going and we're moving we're moving beyond that with the emerging threats uh, from nation state actors through cyber criminals um, and a whole gamut in between um, we really need to to shift our mindset and and really be verifying every connection every session every user every data access and and it can seem overwhelming and I don't want to get too far into it um, because, you know, the the old adage, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good um, really applies in this instance. So I think I might have touched on maybe one or two of your five questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's perfect because it leads us to uh, really this journey. Uh, and uh, I do want to go over the five pillars uh, specifically because when um, so just as, as some background, my, myself and Scott working very closely together on this. Uh, here both from a, a theoretical perspective of what does this mean, how do we communicate it across the organization, as well as really bring in these types of products to the wider audience, you know, the CIS's audience, as it were. And so we have the five pillars. And I wanted to walk through those very specifically, because I think that it's not the right term, or the right point in time, Scott, to work on one pillar at a time and say, okay, I'm going to focus on data, let's do all data first, and then we'll move on to the next pillar of user, of application, of network. There's successes and predecessors, and I think it, it's a journey across all five pillars with some maybe having a um, more focus at, at a particular point in time. But I think all need to really mature at really the same pace. Is that the right thought uh, as we start to introduce this uh, concept?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that there's a lot of discussions and, and it doesn't, uh, it's not a one size fits all um, recommendation for anyone, right? So everybody's business is individual. Everybody's data sets are individual. Every user base is individual. Um, and I don't think that anyone can do all of the pillars. They can't do all of the things. But if you're doing some of the things, you'll um, really see some value in, in applying this methodology. And I always like to start, uh, I think you, you know this, I, I'd like to start from the business perspective. What is it? What is the business objective? What is the business flow? From there, you can use a simple, you know, the Kipling method. You just ask who, what, where, when, why, how. And those will lead you to identify the different components in each one of the pillars. Um, so. Uh, You know, I look at the, um, you know, two simple examples, you know, an an HR admin who has to access uh, uh, the ADP uh, payroll system. And it typically is done between uh, 9 and 5, Monday through Friday. They use a managed laptop to connect to the ADP. Um, They need to confirm and process timesheets. And, you know, they're accessing through an admin web portal. Okay, so you have your, your who, you have your admin. You have your what, the, the payroll system. Uh, you have the when, uh, time frame they're using it normally, and the where uh, they're accessing it from. So you you start breaking it down. Now you have your application. Uh, you have your data, uh, highly sensitive data, because this is an HR system. Um, you have your who. So now you start layering in and say, all right, what capabilities do I have? You know, I have my HR uh, folks in an Active Directory group. Uh, I leverage Okta. All right, we can combine those two to verify the the who. Uh, you know, Do we have data access controls on our payroll system? Do we have classification? Do we have encryption on the, that payroll data? Um, do we have capabilities on our firewalls to uh, leverage the Active Directory group um, and the VLAN that these users might be on? It's a little hard nowadays with everybody working remote, but then you start layering things in you know, anomaly detection, do we have that capability? Can we just say if anybody's connecting to the ADB uh, admin portal and they're an HR user, but they're outside of this time frame, maybe we don't stop them, but maybe we raise an alarm, have the SOC call somebody up and say, hey, you're processing late payroll, or are you doing this because tomorrow's a holiday? You know, you have to look around for the capabilities that you have at hand because you will get stuck in analysis paralysis trying to pick a vendor as the goalposts move uh, down this zero trust journey.
1: Definitely, definitely. I think it really leads me then into this next question, Scott. There's, um, you know, we n- use the Nest eight hundred two hundred seven special publication as a as guidance, um, but I I like the business context requirement because all businesses are different, right? You, you know, there's no set structure to the way finances and HR and other business processes are performed now. One of the things that I think is a predecessor to moving in the space, and again, I want to get your thoughts here, is um, as you mentioned, utilizing your example is having those data flows, that workflow already figured out so that we know what we're then trying to protect. We know what we're then trying to prove in terms of an authorization. So versus HR as access to everything that's HR. That's not the right idea here. I think it's least privilege for the workflow and the um, really the business function that you're trying to perform at a specific point in time. More of a discrete element versus just uh, you know holistic access. Are those the right thoughts? And is that the right perception for people to understand before they move into zero trust? That it's not just um, implementing a technology, but it's actually understanding the business to a workflow, data flow type level. And again, there may may be other artifacts, but having that then leads us to a position where we can then introduce the five pillars and the Kipling piece to this, and now allows you to delineate. Are those the right thoughts? Is that where you would see the best place to start for an organization that's new to Zero Trust? Is it's um, you know, we're not going to start this journey. And uh, in 10 minutes, we're going to be, you know, uh, considered zero trust. We've implemented it. Uh, Again, we'll talk about the journey and whether or not a destination exists, but what are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can't drop in a tool or bring in a vendor or get a set of contractors to come in and, you know, um, fix your business. Even if you were able to stop all new projects and, and get rid of all your legacy systems and all of the buried bodies that are throughout um, the history of the organization. You'd never be able to get there. But if you start engaging with the business, asking about what it is that they need to do, because the number one thing I think we all struggle with in in security is being seen as the inhibitors to to progress. So if you engage the business and ask them about the, the business process, the business flow and the business need, with that understanding, anything that you architect within the Zero Trust Framework has that in mind, so you can actually improve the process workflow. You can you can start leveraging. So say you have something like a, uh, an IDP linked into your CRM um, where you can onboard uh, new users and have them automatically populated with all the proper permissions to do their job on day one. Now you're helping the business. So, um, you know, really understanding what it is that the business needs it will help you to architect. And again, Looking at the 80/20 rule, right, and 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 looking at it and saying, okay, so the business really needs to do this. This is a critical project. We have these, you know, six of eight desired components of zero trust. That's good enough. We'll we'll try to work on these other two at a later date, or find out that you have a gap and then bring that into the next project discussion or the the next migration, and say, hey, this gap keeps on coming up. Let's focus our efforts. On the side to try to close this gap, and then come back and revisit the um, individual projects and, and fill that gap. So again, journey, iterate as you go. Try to go along with the business, um, and uh, you know identify the gaps a- along the way.
1: Definitely, yeah. Well, I think it's um, an inherent piece of gap analysis. I think as, as you go through this process, you'll start then, I believe, and we've kind of started on this journey already, uh, working through our architecture working group, is um, we'll identify candidates that we're going to bring in and introduce five pillars, Kipling method, and introduce those and move those forward with the zero trust mentality. I think ultimately, the more you do this discovery, this gap analysis, and you'll see how business processes are integrated. So there's where some of our predecessors come in is, well, we're trying to do it for this project, but this project is a puzzle piece for ultimately all of our business process. One puzzle piece with these controls in play versus the others, um, you know, from an authentication perspective, well, you know, your single sign-on needs to integrate through that flow. And so we then need to introduce this across really the uh, uh, multiple business, uh, multiple lines of business. Let me put it that way. And then, so one of the things, um, and I'll get to, I I just want to introduce some of the, uh, I'll call it the CISO's dilemma, but um, I'll get to that in a second. But as we start to introduce and build capability, And I think a lot of what we've been doing is projectized. You know, a lot of the upgrades go through project. A lot of big change management elements go through projects and introducing these concepts as requirements and delineating and, you know, utilizing architectural diagrams and understanding of the change and how that affects our overall business process, i.e. identifies the gaps, as you mentioned. I think ultimately, too, it also introduces the concept of... Uh, risk uh, and what we're doing here to uh, understand risk, conceptualize a process to control it in a way, you know, if the ultimately the uh, strategy to treat that risk is a mitigation, then using these archetypes. But it brings me to then the CISO dilemma is how much control is enough? How much zero trust puts us at a point where we feel comfortable that we've mitigated risk, or ultimately, and Scott, I'll pose this to you, this is really threat protection. Because I think ultimately, we want to understand the threat that's posed to the methods, the processes in our underlying business context, where we look at, you know, some of the MITRE attack framework, look at the APTs, you know, are we necessarily a target in that space? And what do we need to do to prevent that? I think that's also part of gap analysis is where we Maybe are missing controls based on the tactics and techniques from threat. Is that true? Is is should that also be considered when we contextualize the business? It's not just the business process, but really the business mission, the business goal, and the business vertical that we're in in terms of industry. What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that, and there's a there's an underlying uh, thread there. To pull and extract that has uh, a bunch of tentacles, right? And that's the the inventory. So being able to to get at what what does our user base look like? What what is the landscape of our devices? And how do we uh, stack up as far as posture assessment? Are we updated and patched? Yeah. What is our application uh, base? How much open source software do we have? How many APIs do we have? Um, you know, what is it that we're protecting? What is the data? Um, and it's not the glamorous work, it's actually probably the hardest thing to do, especially with mature organizations uh, that have been around a while, um, is identifying what it is. I always go back to the analogy, you know, uh, hiring a security guard for your bank and putting them at the front door and say, guard the money. Well, you gotta tell him where the money is so that he knows, and then how much money. So what kind of adversary is gonna be coming after me? Is this a small local bank or, you know, Is this a a multinational bank with bars of gold? Is it Fort Knox? So um, understanding what it is that you need to protect leads you to then shift and say, okay, who are the adversaries? Uh, What are my threats? Look at my inventory. What are my risks? How much legacy systems do I carry? Then you could start making um, decisions around, you know, where do I need to apply encryption? Where do I need to go and focus on uh, data classification? Do I need to segment this data off? Um, you know, do I need to put user access controls, not only for network access, general network access, but into these um, into these networks, into these repositories, into this actual data set, down to this actual row of a table um, without knowing the inventory. And, I, and again, it, it's not easy work. Um, But you should be able to have some discussions with your business to identify what it is that uh, the crown jewels, that uh, that old term. Start there um, and and put some some monitoring in place. Um, Identify some some low level uh, data sources and try to run through some of these scenarios with applying zero trust, where it's not a big impact, but you can show that the system works. Take a small data set that's not that important, but Apply these controls and say, um, you know, we're going to put some network access controls. We're going to do some anomaly detection. We're going to put some geo filters on. We're going to use secrets manager or something. Uh, put a bastion host in. See if you can get and streamline that process to um, control the business application, and then, um, you know, be able to repeat, iterate, and uh, uh, build confidence within the organization.
1: Definitely, definitely, because I think ultimately one of the elements that we have here is um, another predecessor is really buy-in from the organization to approach this methodology. Because, like you say, this is um, this is not the glamorous work, as it were. Specifically, when we, you know, talk user uh, data uh, and the business process and mapping those elements. Some people find, you know, I I enjoy doing that because ultimately I think it leads to a better appreciation of what is going on within the business and the underlying application. I think having that understanding and to your point with managed inventory, combining those two, I think, covers a huge number of gaps that a lot of organizations see, right? We just don't know. We're putting this, you know, defense in depth process together. We're throwing technology at this problem, but we've not contextualized the problem. Uh, And I think when you take zero trust. I think it's a conceptualization framework. It's a contextualization framework for the business to then introduce these capabilities that are appropriate because we're not just saying, well, this technology ultimately is going to take care of this risk. That's the wrong idea, at least in my mind. The discussions we've had is "It's I need to understand the process." In order to integrate technology, control from a you know a people process technology type perspective, the PPT. Um, I again internal people get that I, I talk about that a lot, but it really does you know is an underlying emphasis of what we're trying to do here. We then move to data, and we introduce you know new concepts in that space where we're we're talking about encrypt everywhere, uh, and so some of those then have uh, respective connotation. In terms of protection, but anyway, Scott, you, what no, do you think?
0: I, I think you're you're touching on on something that uh, is, is crucial and vital to being able to um, see the see the trees for the forest or forest for the trees, one or the other. But the but the whole uh, concept of DLP, right? It, it's it's in the zero trust strategy. It, it's a, a fundamental control for data security. Um, but I've seen plenty of organizations. I've seen plenty of vendors say, oh, we can do DLP. We'll just do DLP everywhere. We'll put all these sensors in. You'll be doing network DLP file, DLP, all this. Huge initiatives, just enormous. And, um, you know, in, in my eyes, if you, if you look at the selected data sets that are the most vital, that contain the critical information for the business uh, or for compliance or regulatory, and apply your efforts to secure that data set. You'll be further along than trying to take the spray and pray approach and put all these sensors out and and uh, take up your IT staff's um, time with a multi-year project that is showing little value other than a lot of noise and false alarm.
1: Absolutely. I think we've got to hit our key point that you just mentioned, multi-year Um, in fact, I think once you start down this journey, I'm not sure that it ever ends. I think this truly is a journey with not necessarily a destination. I think there's stops along the way where you hit maturity levels and risk mitigation stages where you feel more confident that, yeah, we, you know, we can protect ourselves from these forms of attack, or we can, you know, understand the business process and we manage identity, we manage users and data respectful to the business process, and we've reduced that down to a level where if that was compromised by an insider or externally, and there's compromised credentials or compromised uh, non-person entity type credentials within our systems, we've reduced the the risk, right? The underlying exposure. I think once you get there, that's kind of a stop on this journey where you can, you know, in some cases I would celebrate that. That's fantastic. We're able to achieve that, but, you know, you kind of have to get back on the bus or the train, however whatever mode of transportation we're using in this journey, Scott, is. But then we're on to the next up because I think ultimately it's a continuous improvement process. And another element that you mentioned um, is also the support requirements that are needed because this is not something for the faint of heart, as it were. And I think that's from governance, uh, underlying operations, and then also monitoring. Because uh, you just, you know, we bring up... a I'll say simple. Uh, you know, it's three letters: DLP. So, our data loss prevention. That in itself is a, and to your point, is a huge task that is not for the faint of heart. But it's on this journey. Again, once you reach that stop and you've implemented it, and you're, you know, you've reduced your false positives to a level that you're comfortable with, and it's given you appropriate telemetry. I think that's another way you get off, celebrate, but then jump back on because there's there's more to integrate. Change, obviously, is a huge part of this. Any change to business process has to be conceptualized through this. It's because ultimately our business processes are not stagnant. I wish they were because I think we could mature a lot faster and protect them, but those change every day. Well, respectfully, not every day, but they change over time at a velocity where we've got to keep up as security professionals especially when we're implementing these types of infrastructure. I want to get your thoughts on that. Is that the right thought, Scott? Is that the right approach we should take with project change and then also ultimately the support for for these separate elements of governance, operations, and monitoring?
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, the way I, I think of it, the the, the zero trust is, is just a, a framework, uh, a coalescing of things that, all of us in security have been doing since the beginning, right? They're they're just all coming together. There's so much now um, that we need to put up in a framework to keep it organized and 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 focus the efforts in some sort of contextualized pillar. Um, you know, it, it we we didn't necessarily have the widespread um, you know uh, Pam access and and uh, next gen firewalls and anomaly detection and ML ai and um you know being able to do these deep uh, posture assessments we didn't have uh, a lot of these tools basically what the zero trust has done is to to kind of put them in a contextualized compartment so you can focus on one without getting overwhelmed um and then like you said you want to take so so if you if you're starting out on the journey and you have a couple of these pillars set up with with your your people processing technology what do you do with that? You can celebrate that you had the deployment, everything works as expected, and that's a great, you should pause and and take that win. But what are you going to do with that information now? You need to get that information into a a monitoring system. Now, I I know you're a big fan of the um, single pane of glass. Uh, You know, Other people call it the manager of managers and and all of this. So it's it's something to strive to. You want to have it be centralized so that you can do those anomaly based detections, user behavior analysis, all of these higher level functions. But at the most fundamental level, you have to have them written somewhere where somebody looks at them and they can do something about them. Um, So, you know, having each one of these tools and these processes be put into a monitoring system where you can make educated decisions about, you know, do I need to respond to an incident? Uh, you know if i see a PowerShell being executed on this device and it's in this subset of um uh, executables i want to raise an alarm does that alarm now kick the sock into action um, yes or no and you want to have that be as automated as possible another uh, benefit of having a more centralized reporting i won't even go to say, say centralized is that you can uh, e- make it easier to do your audit uh, uh evidence collections and, and show your compliance. So you can build some of the reports into your monitoring system. You, even if it's not one of these um, big vendors, if you have a monitoring system, you write scripts to pull, pull the data in, put it in a repository. So when the auditors come calling, you can just go to this directory, show them the information. If they need you know, live data, you can reach out to your engineers. But the engineers shouldn't have to go into the discrete systems and then pull all this information in. Um, so the way that I visualize it um, is that the pillars are along the bottom. They all feed into monitoring, whatever that may be. And then from that spins off your incident response on one side and your audit and governance on the other side.
1: Perfect. Perfect. I think one of the enablers, and, and it's something you know that you've introduced uh, to the organization, is the concept of automation and uh, the utility of the cloud where we can really get that, um, I think that the approach where we understand events and alerts start building conceptualized models to bring all of that together, right? Because I think ultimately there are triggers and events that allow us to write underlying function that can uh, remediate, uh, you know, an underlying problem, um, or, to your point, you know, there's messaging capability. It goes to the the monitoring, uh, to my archetypal single pane of glass, which I often say, uh, that's why Scott mentioned it. It's, it's kind of on repeat with me. And it's not to say that there is a single pane of glass that should be the manager of managers, but it's, we're bringing data together, right? It becomes this underlying data science problem of integrating all of this information so we can react quicker. And we can use automated capability now. Whether that evolves into a SOAR, whether that just involves to underlying messaging, or um, kind of our uh, the the approach that we've taken with infrastructure as code, where it's you know if that there's an issue, okay, we can instantiate a capability through the through the underlying automated methodology to either um, you know tear down, bring back up, replace. Um, quarantine, control. And I think that gives us a lot of capability in this space that, you know, when I think back maybe five, 10 years, it's the cloud, I think has enabled us to do some really cool things. But I think in itself, it also brings new issues because it's not the same conceptual approach to on-prem technology that we have anymore. You know, everything literally, you know, you don't touch anything other than, you know, you can write a you know a json script and have that really create and manage your infrastructure and you're monitoring it through you know a single pane uh representatively your your dashboard within any system and it gives you so much power but i'm not sure that we're utilizing it and obviously um you know one of the larger um cloud providers is you know having their annual conference and i'm sure you know throughout the year, there's hundreds of different new capabilities and trying to ingest that into a process is, well, it's just, it's amazing. The amount of innovation that we've seen, I think the ultimate problem is, is being able to organize that in in an approach that we've, let's say we started last year and we are saying we're going this direction, this new function, this new capability may, oh, well, it's redefining the way we're going to architect this capability. There's this brand new uh, element of monitoring, detection, uh, automated response um, that we can integrate, but we've got to learn that technology. We've got to integrate it into our current platforms, and it's um, and that's why I mentioned this continuous improvement process because I think I don't think you should get derailed at every time there's a new technology that integrates and maybe something you can use because it's again, you know, in some cases it's the um, you know, the new flashy system, as it were, uh, that, oh, I can integrate this, I can do some really cool stuff with this. But I think it detracts from this plan that we've put in place. And by no means, and and this is something we need to comment, Scott, this is not a, uh, and I mentioned, you know, the 10 minute turnaround. And in some cases, you can build a complete infrastructure in 10 minutes on some of these platforms, but implementing Zero Trust is a multi-year project to get to the point where you're able to stop at stations get off, celebrate, jump back on. Um, So it just seems like we've got a lot of opportunity, but I think it's uh, diligent learning. Uh, I think, uh, again, in this space, it's continuous learning, especially automation and the, uh, I think you mentioned, you know, another pillar could be workspace or infrastructure, uh, especially when we consider uh, cloud elements. So I wanna get your thoughts there and how you've tackled that problem um, Hmm. that, that, that we have.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to touch on the um, the automation piece, right? Because sure. um, there's two schools of thought. I don't know if it's just uh, the type of human you are or not. There's there's the ones that trust implicitly the machines, and then there's the rest of us, right? So the, the um it, it's hard to get that uh, that buy in to say you know we're we're going to write this this automated script that's going to be monitoring, and then if we see this um uh posture change on this device we're going to quarantine it or we're going to do something there's a lot of resistance and pushback I want to see the full process I what you know how long before I get human on the phone these types of things but you can build in um, structures to have automated uh, remediations as well so if you think about the entire life cycle nobody wants to make the business come to a grinding halt um, but you know if you see that this user is accessing the database and he's always done it from this IP address, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. And then all of a sudden he accesses it from um, uh, New York, you know, it's still in the U.S. So it's not a big, you know, impossible that they didn't just hop on a plane in that three hours and now connected to New York. But maybe you do a step up authentication or maybe you you quarantine them or, or put a, um, a check-in so that they have to go in that uh, have a virus scan or, or do something else. There's ways that you can automate the remediation as well as the quarantining in, in that case. Um, but yeah, the, the, the cloud is a uh, ever-evolving um, beast uh, that everyone is trying to get their hands around. There's a lot of opportunities. Um, we can understand it from the business perspective. We can understand it from uh the it perspective i mean no longer are people bound to you know deliveries of pallets full of gear that you have to go and put into your data center and wire up and get the wiring guys to cable it up and do all the testing you can spin these things up on demand and it even gets even more um uh more complex when you start talking about uh kubernetes uh and containerization and and all of these other things and um you know it's moving fast and, and there's new features and functionality being built into the cloud constantly. We, we joke around that, you know, by the time you read an AWS document, it's out of date because they've added some new feature or changed the way it works, which is great for, for getting new concepts. But um, trying to wrap policy around that, and put, put guidelines in place and, and put all these systems in place, it, it makes it very hard for um, the engineers on the ground and IT and especially the security professionals to... To keep their um, their wits about them and, and keep up with it, so I think that's one of the reasons why the um, uh, the cloud is a is a major hurdle. But there are a lot of opportunities because uh, a lot of the major cloud vendors are looking at security. They're taking the feedback from individual organizations and building that uh, into their roadmaps, adding new features and functionality. Um, when I first uh, had my experience with you know, a migration to Google, um, I was terrified, to be honest with you. And uh, rightfully so, because they didn't really seem to be the controls. There's it's a lot better now. Um, AWS has, has gone through multiple iterations, made it easier to configure and secure your environments. They give you the controls um, and monitoring systems and platforms. It's all about now, how do you apply that to your business?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more because it's um, it's really become a, a challenge to know where to really put the time and resources to invest in an implementation when you see constant iteration and improvement. So I think there's, you know, you draw your line in the sand, you define the policy, as it were, and we can talk about policies both from the written zero trust architectural perspective versus the access and implicit trust policies that will integrate as part of, um, the requirements from going from untrusted to this underlying implicit trust. But then I also think it's, um, this element of evaluation and seeing where the next steps should be. Um, but you've got to maintain the five pillar journey ultimately. Uh, And I think it's, um, those are some of the harder decisions, and um, well, really, I think, which I defer to you <laughs> uh, in the I, I organization. Think
0: <laughs> I, th- I think that's uh, one one of the good things about having the the zero trust framework is it gives you something to visually look at. You know, I have I have right. pictures of it around my my uh, my office here, and it's just one of those things where you get buried in the details, and you're reading the the um, uh, Technical documentation, and you're getting lost in the weeds, and you just have to look up and say, "Okay, so what can I focus on? You know, if I'm talking about access to an S3 bucket, what options do I have? What do I need to be concerned with? Okay, I need to be concerned with the user. How is the user going to access this? You know, I'm concerned about the data. So what controls on that S3 bucket can I apply? Um, uh, all of, all the way down to, you know, we're going to have an outside vendor connect to this uh, this environment and need to pull uh, S3. So do I look at something like a private link or whatever? Um, you know, it just gives you a chance to step back and say, all right, let's, let's just focus on the things that, um, really are fundamentally defined in the zero trust model. And, um, you know, work with our vendors and our partners and our, our IT staff to see how we can build into individual controls. If there's a gap, we document it and, uh, we work to to fill that gap with another control.
1: Definitely, definitely. Because again, with ultimately defining both the data plane and the control plane, I think it gives us opportunities. To your point, to identify the gaps, make improvements. We do a risk assessment. We can even do, in some cases, and you know, one of the things I like to do a business impact analysis based on the underlying process and the technology we're integrating, um, the ramification of change and uh, ultimately changes in business process. So I talk ramification of change in underlying technology, upgrades to that technology or net new capability in that space. All of that really has to take on uh, a new conceptual idea. I don't think it's necessarily new, Scott, but it's not something I've seen well-practiced in my career where we get that information. Uh, Ultimately, you you and me, where we're looking at these types of um, changes from both the technology and an underlying business process and where we're then asking, you know, from the Kipling perspective, but then we're also looking now across these pillars to say, what is impacted? um, What does this do to our current progress on this journey, which is really an overarching holistic journey for the organization? And then you have discrete business unit changes that, you know, I don't think derail, but it it, it sometime, uh, you know, you have to change your uh, train schedule as it were, I guess I'll use that analogy. Uh, And that then has, you know, um, an underlying domino effect because I think ultimately change when it's not necessarily anticipated, especially on a, you know, a multi-year journey that we're starting with our zero trust architectural perspective is those changes can um, either um take away from what you're trying to do so we have we you know we start with user and data we're going to ask these questions we'll look at the te- current technology stack but as that technology stack changes over time it's either updated upgraded um replaced those then can have a condition where now i need to reconceptualize my little train journey this you know the what time i was expecting to get to this particular station has now changed. And, you know, there may be a new stop in between that we, we have to really represent and understand. And I think that gets into the, uh, elements where we then want to introduce policy enforcement. We've got to have an underlying engine that administers these requisite policies so we can both represent the control plane and the data plane at kind of at the same time. So uh, again, I'm using planes, trains, automobiles (laughs) will be next, but (laughs) <laughs> Ultimately, it gets us to a point where we can um, have uh, this understanding that it's always going to be a dynamic environment. I don't think any of the decisions you know that we've currently made have have been static. Have come to fruition without an underlying change or without an underlying. Um, tweak, as it were, let me, I'll use tweak here in terms of what we were trying to do, right? I mean, you know, the best laid plans are ultimately set for failure. So I think integrating that dynamic capability into this process, knowing what you set, what we talked about last year and where we are today are two completely different um, stories, as it were. But as long as you're adaptable to that and, you know, we'll throw up an agile type capability here, it allows you then to um, integrate that change and move forward. Now, we do get into an idea or a concept of iteration. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that as we move forward is I think we have to iterate through these processes and, but ultimately you're building the five pillows, right? So you've got all of these required controls So you're iterating through something that you need to kind of fit into a five pillar. So, you know, you're trying to fit this square and trying to adapt it into, uh, you know, the cube, into the, you know, the, the cube, you know, the square hole, as it were, for these requisite controls, ultimately, it's sometimes it's difficult because either you've not communicated the requirement properly. And what you get back is uh, something that you then have to re-architect into these ideals. And I think that's kind of some of the the training wheels, as it were. So we're on bikes now. Um, Those training wheels are still kind of part of our process where it's um, we don't exactly get the information that we can completely uh, translate into a zero trust at this point in time. And I think a lot of organizations are going through that because it's... In some cases, it's a new intake into the requirements process for projects, change management, uh, and ul- ultimately the adaptation of business processes. So but I want I to get the, your thoughts, Scott.
0: I think the analogies that we're using and coming up with all the modes of transportation just fits well with the the, with the journey, right? It doesn't matter what you're on as long as you're on that journey and you're moving, right? So the yes. worst thing you could do is is stay static, Um and with that legacy mentality, right? The 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 castle and moat uh, uh, methodology just is not is not going to work.
1: Um, exactly.
0: But but I think you're right. You need to look at the um, uh, the journey um, with your business counterparts. You know, if you're doing development in the cloud, um, uh, go through the exercise to do a racy. Who's responsible for what? What makes sense? So you can put some guardrails and some clear lines of responsibility in place. From there, you can say, you know, for instance, um, you know, developers need to do developer stuff, but they don't need to do identity and access management stuff. That should be its own separate um, function, probably within IT. Maybe you have an IAM department. It would be in there. Um, now you can say, OK, they have a responsibility here. So how do you keep up with the business? Well, now you start looking at, can we implement policy as code? So we're doing everything in code. Why can't we do policy in code? You build it based off of your policy. So now, if you have a policy change or the architecture changes, you, you update your policy and you update your policy as code. Now you can continue down that journey. You don't have to re-architect everything. Um, you know, little fundamental things like that. Also, talking to the vendors, um, saying that zero trust is important to us. How is your product going to help? And you know, holding them to it because they'll say, "Oh yeah, we do zero trust and all this," but no, really. What can we do with this product? If we make a purchase here and we do a spend, how are you going to help us with one of the components of zero trust? How do we integrate that system? Um, you know, they have to be um, also on that journey. You know, ask the vendors. Where are you on the zero trust? If they start <laughs> looking up at the sky and not really answering your question, that's a red flag because everybody Absolutely. needs to be on this journey.
1: Definitely. No, I think you're right. And I think um, I do want to mention one of the archetypes that you would put together. It's similar to a Racy chart, but was ultimately the technology and where it fit into the five pillars. You know, there was a primary or a support capability of technologies and how those in combination really then build to the five pillars of control. I thought that was excellent. Uh, it's a really good concept because it's not only who's responsible but ultimately the technologies that you want to integrate. And I think that's good for gap analysis as well, because you may not, you know, in the DLP place, because we've used it as an example before, without that element, you know, there's underlying a gap in data that we need to integrate. But the data loss prevention is not just about data, but also about user in the context of how that data is being used having the data flows as a predecessor to that. You know, I'm a big proponent of data flows before you do data classification, before you do DLP. So there's steps in this process to building the pillar of data and then ultimately understanding that and having these elements. So gap analysis, uh, risk mitigation strategy, ultimately what threats are you preventing or um, controlling, as it were. And then that allows you to uh, understand, well, what's the investment? what amount of resources do I need? What about continuous operation? And how does this fit into my monitoring program? All of these questions need to be answered before you then move into that space. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this, Scott, a lot of organizations are not starting and just scrapping all of their infrastructure and their business processes and say, we'll start from scratch we'll do everything with these five pillars, we'll integrate all this technology. No, no, no. You're adapting your technologies to you know, the five pillars, as it were. And then ultimately over time, you're either going to upgrade um, or you're going to buy net new in terms of filling gaps or uh, upgrading to new capabilities within a lot of products, as you mentioned. You know, Some of the big um, buzzwords we hear, uh, you know, integrated machine learning and underlying artificial intelligence that helps us then you know, do a few things. And ultimately, they those have their limits to ultimately classification um, and clustering in some cases um, of respective groups or ultimately regression in terms of understanding uh, and predicting future events. But those don't solve all of our problems um, just because, you know, they integrate some, some cool ideas and being data-driven, as it were, Uh, and ultimately an analysis. But it's got to be contributive to what we're trying to do in Zero Trust. Uh, Again, one of the things that I don't like to see is when the promise of Zero Trust is made and you purchase based on that, but it doesn't contribute to your ultimate program, right? It's a a train schedule for another train that you're never going to be on. And that just, it's it's disheartening to see and, and to your point you've got to work with the vendors to see how they integrate because they've got to be on the same journey with you and you know we all go on our little I'll use another train uh, analogy here but we all go on our little uh, side trip to demo land and demo land is perfect right everything works in demo land you know the sky is bright it, it's perfect everything works but when you get back from demo land onto an actual business context a business process the integration, the time to get that return on investment and the business process of integration of new technology is not always as it seems as it was in demo land. So it's, uh, I think ultimately you've got to be um, very cognizant and judicious in terms of, because these, you know, in some cases, these are big spends. Ultimately though, it's resources, not only the resource to implement, but the resource to continuously operate because As Scott had said, this is a journey. Zero trust doesn't end because you flick on a switch of a particular product or service. It's got it's continuous. It's integrated into a complete cybersecurity and risk management program. Scott, what what do you think? Uh, I'm just just
0: thinking about the uh, the CISO in Demo Land. He's probably sitting on the beach and gets regular updates (laughs) on his phone and says everything's okay. Everything's okay. So. But, but yeah, I mean, the vendors, they, they do have capabilities that are zero trust, right? You, you can talk to a vendor and they can say, you know, we assign a risk score, for instance. Okay, that's great. Um, how do we implement that into our strategy? How do we leverage that risk score to do a step-up authentication? Um, can you help us with that? Because delivering that risk score is just another thing that I flash on a dashboard. But if I can't use that context to make a decision about whether or not this person needs to have additional verification, again, verify, always verify. I'm going to assume he's breached. So when he makes a connection, uh, if the risk score is increased because there's a new program on his computer, I need to do something about that. I need to take action on that. So um, having the vendors be able to to work with you and understand your business and, and your um, uh, structure and the journey that you're on and what you intend to get out of this product is, is also key. Um, because, again, I think you alluded to it is, is our our IT teams have a lot on their plates. You know, I, I've seen it in every shop that I've ever worked. Everybody's working on trying to get rid of these legacy systems. Um, the adversaries know it. I'm not disclosing anything that they, they don't already know. Um, every company has, um, you know, this technical debt that they're carrying. They have, you know, they patch all these vulnerabilities, but then you have uh, the business saying they can't have any downtime all of these um, competing interests uh, can really disrupt any kind of timeline to introduce um, new services and really think through um, applying a zero trust framework to your organization so it does take take focus it takes buy-in and i think that's why i was saying if you start with the business and try to pick a few use cases maybe they're uh, low protect surface um, use cases apply some of these methodologies just just pick one capability in each one of the pillars and put them together and see if you can make it work. right? Um, yep. Make make that bicycle with the training wheels. Can I roll this through <laughs> without anything breaking? All right, did I monitor things? Let me change something on it and roll it through again. Did it trigger the incident response uh, alert that I wanted to? You know. All right, let me run a, a report. Do I see everything that happened during this test phase? Okay, now I have um, a template now, can I add more things, remove things? Now, can I put together a playbook to say, you know, if it's this set of data, you have to run through this template. You need to have these controls. Um, you know, you have to have Privileged Access Management uh, or you have to have your your secrets stored in a um, secrets vault. Um, you know, you have to use uh, multi-factor authentication. Uh, it has to have single sign-on. Um, all the data must be encrypted. Um, you know you can start small uh, what is it uh, aim small miss small so yes. <laughs> so 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 do the target practice do the target practice on some small stuff first show the value show how you can improve the process because if you build process improvement into the security it's going to sell itself
1: exactly exactly right perfect well, Scott, that brings us to really um, the final part of uh, the podcast that I host. And there's a, a little section I call the Atkinson Nine, where I ask you uh, nine kind of quickfire questions uh, based on a similar style to uh, the Actors Studio, uh, James Lipton. Um, and so we'll start with the first. What is your favorite CIS control?
0: <laughs> favorite control? Uh, well, there's... Uh... There's some fun ones, but, uh, um, you know, the incident response and monitoring and defense, you know, the, the whole cat and mouse game, that, that's that's always the fun stuff. Um, but I think I alluded to it earlier. It's, it's, the, it's the non-fun stuff. It's the inventory, right? Yep. So identifying your data, your applications, and your users, that'll set you up to be able to make the best decisions about the framework that you need to put in place and the tools that you need. Perfect.
1: Okay. Second one. What is your least favorite part of your profession?
0: Being seen as the inhibitor to progress. That, <laughs> that is the one that I'm sure burns everyone.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I've got to hold my hand up to that one as well. <laughs> uh, I get that label all the time. All right, number three, why do you like the cybersecurity industry?
0: Uh, the challenge and the constant learning, um, and it just seems to accelerate. Um, and and sometimes it is is hard to keep up, but um, it's it's always something new. You're never going to be bored in this uh, industry, that's for sure.
1: Absolutely. What don't you like about cybersecurity?
0: All the continuous learning that I no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> see see number three. <laughs> uh,
0: um, well, I, I think. <sighs> I don't know. I might be thinking of it differently than you intended the question. I'm, I'm thinking of it as that we, as an industry, t- tend to invest in technology um, over and at the expense of, of process and people. Um, I, I think uh, I think we really need to shift our mindset. That technology is great. They do amazing things. We are technology people, um, but uh, people run the machines and, and processes make them work. So.
1: Absolutely. An unhealthy balance in PPT. No question on the T. No question. Absolutely. Um, what source of log data do you love? <laughs>
0: Easy. DNS. Perfect. Show me the DNS and I'll tell you the story.
1: <laughs> awesome. Uh, number six, biggest waste of time in cybersecurity.
0: Um, well, I've seen it in the past and it's a uh, resistance to change, right? So... Everybody's built these these great networks and, and strong walls and pillars and all the processes and gone through their ISO certifications and have everything and everybody knows their job duties and and then the world gets turned upside down. We're in the cloud and now everything is on its head. So the thing you can do is just go with the flow, point your feet down the river and, and just uh, try to navigate with the business.
1: Awesome. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
0: Oh. That's fun. I don't know if I'm smart enough, but uh, astronomer, there is just so much out there. And with all the images coming back from the James Webb, it's oh, yes,
1: JWT. Fantastic. What profession would you avoid?
0: Oh dear. Cybersecurity architect. See my bio. That's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I guess uh, just because just I, I had an experience this weekend, but uh, probably a farmer. They don't oh. get enough credit, and they have a tough job, and they have the worst enemy ever. They have the worst adversary, and that would be the uh, mother nature.
1: Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, last one. Number nine. At the end of your career, how would you like to be remembered?
0: Yeah. I guess as a good mentor.
1: Awesome. Well, Scott, that was uh, excellent. Thank you so much. We've we've got some other podcasts to do about DevSecOps. We've got a lot to talk about, so we'll certainly have you back on the podcast. But to the audience, uh, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And with that, thank you very much. Thank you for listening
0: to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.